Hello and welcome to Narrative, a journey into the ancient art of storytelling. A place to gather by the fire and share the stories of our ancestors. A place to gather and tell our own tales. Here we will explore legends, fairy tales, myths, and folklore. We'll have conversations around archetypes, history, theology, and the ancient mysteries, as well as having discussions on how it all pertains to our lives. Before carvings or hieroglyphs or written word, our ancestors kept their stories alive through oral tradition. In honoring them, I too want to continue this path. Thank you for joining me. I am your host, Mary Rogers. In the forest, heed my warning, dear traveler, beware. For in the forest lives a witch with a shriveled leg and disheveled hair. And in the woods where the path does split, know your way and keep your wit. For one wrong turn and you'll quickly end in a place where your life you must defend. For there in the clearing a house you'll see, one that walks about on chicken feet. In front of the house a fence you'll find, one made from bones, the humankind. Atop each stake there'll be a skull, lit from within the blaze won't dull, like a jack-o'-lantern on All Hallows' Eve. And though you'll want shelter, don't be deceived. Take heed, dear traveler, and be aware, for in this place there's no safety there. And though you may find your stomach wretched, and written down a passage etched, hut, hut, turn your back to the forest and your front to me. Beware speaking these words, lest you suddenly see. A mortar steered by pistol, or a broom on the forest floor. For this is how she travels, like a canoe with an oar. In today's episode, we're going to talk about one of my favorite characters, the ambiguous Slavic witch and cannibal, Baba Yaga. Believe it or not, Baba Yaga is actually considered a dark goddess. And like most dark goddesses, her dualistic nature is that of mother goddess, or in her case, as she's known as the crone, besides being a witch, she also has the energy of a nurturing grandmother. Baba Yaga first appeared in Mikhail Lomonosov's Russian Grammar in 1755, though she seems to have appeared in oral folklore long before the 1700s, as has been shown in many woodblock prints. The first narrative account of Baba Yaga is in Levishin's 1780 collections Russian Fairy Tales in which she is depicted as terrifying and dangerous with teeth like tusks and hands like bear claws. In Slavic languages, Baba typically refers to a female or a woman. And in other translations, it can mean fortune teller, midwife, or sorceress. And Yaga translates to horror, serpent, snake, witch, or evil woman. And by now, through these different episodes, you should know that almost every dark goddess is actually associated with the serpent. In most tales, anyone who stumbles across her hen hut will be given impossible riddles, tasks, and tests. It's said that if you pass, she will guide you with her magic and give you the aid you seek. But if you fail, you'll likely end up dead and boiled in her evening stew. Baba Yaga is unpredictable, wild, and her actions seem to be guided by her fickle moods. Though in truth, she wasn't always considered evil or a hag. In her form as a goddess, Baba Yaga was said to reign over time, life, death, and the elements. She was associated with strong winds and dark forests, connected to the earth, the heavens, and the underworld. She is said to straddle the boundary between life and death. 
In almost every tale, she's said to be a very powerful sorceress and is guardian to the waters of life that grant immortality. It's also said that she's the keeper of magical objects, like enchanted mirrors that turn into lakes, poems that can transform the forest, a horse that can jump rivers, handkerchiefs that become rivers, a flying carpet, fire-breathing horses, and fire to destroy your foes. There's one tale about a boy named Ivan, young of years and old in wisdom, that she gives a magical ball of red wool or yarn to. And as the story unfolds and the yarn unravels, we find that the yarn magically leads him to his destiny. And it's in stories like these that we discover that she's not simply an ogre witch that likes to steal and eat your children. Instead, what we find is an ancient spirit whose stories carry deep reverence and tales of powerful wisdom and magic. As the crone, she's the wise elder, one who teaches, one who initiates, and the one who knows. When we look to the goddesses in their different forms, we can see the fool's journey play out in the major arcana of tarot as we go from maiden to mother to crone. In the Bible, Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 11 says, There shall not be found among you any that useth divin divination or an observer of times or an enchanter or a witch, a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, a wizard or a necromancer. And as my own gifts began to open and I started working with tarot, I literally had to challenge my own beliefs being raised in a very strict Christian household. But as I've studied the mystery school teachings in so many cultures, when it comes to the major arcana at least, I can see the wisdom placed within those cards as the fool goes on his journey. Interestingly enough, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was a mystery school of sorts that taught and lived by the elements and esoteric teachings. I often think of them when I think of tarot. They actually didn't create the first tarot deck. Throughout history, playing cards were actually used for divination, and the oldest surviving set, known as the Visconti deck, was created for the Duke of Milan's family around 1440, although those cards were used to play a game that's very similar to bridge. They didn't start being used for divination until the late 15th century. In the major arcana and tarot, we begin with the fool, which here I'm going to relate to the maiden. The fool, in their innocence, is naive. And as they step out into the world, they come to know the magician, learning that within they carry untapped potential. Then they meet the high priestess, who shows them how to access their potential by going within, as that is how we tap into our intuition, the all-knowing energy we all carry. And as the fool's journey continues, they're initiated by life. Eventually, they become the lovers and move from maiden to mother. Driven by the chariot, they find strength and inner reflections. When we moved into the phase of mother from maiden. Many times this is when the stuff from our childhood begins to surface. And as we move through the wheel, the wheel of fortune, we begin a process of reclamation, often feeling indignant and from a place of victim as we throw around blame and condemnation, demanding and longing for justice. But life is humbling and will always bring you to your knees if your ego becomes a stumbling block. When you post your flag of righteousness on top of the hill called know-it-all, in this stage of life, most of us have encountered this. And then we're humbled by life as we become the hanged man facing death. Not always in a literal sense, but in a sense of perspective and an initiatory dark night of the soul. And from that depth, temperance is born. But we will be tested time and time again. We're destined to repeat tragedies and trauma until the lesson has not just been learned, but embodied. And this is the introduction to the crone and the hard-won wisdom of experience. This is the most powerful and empowering initiatory phase of life. When the tower moments come, suddenly we realize 
We didn't get swept away. We didn't topple. We held our ground and we remained centered as everything else crumbled around us. In this strength and this endurance that we acquire in the midst of this chaos, from it something beautiful and magical is born. A belief in ourselves, a demand for respect. We set boundaries and we honor not just our own, but also those of others. We dance with the stars under the light of the moon while feasting on the sun. Nurtured by the elements of nature, we move towards judgment with a new understanding that all we have gone through, all we have endured, all of the trauma or wounding we've suffered. We suddenly see so many things in a different light. We're no longer clinging to the identity of victim. We've begun taking radical responsibility for ourselves and for the quality of our lives. We learn the power of forgiveness, not for the other person, but for ourselves. And we come to understand who we are. We are, or we became this person because of what we've gone through. The trauma no longer defines us. Rather, it's what built us. And this is a time of sacred reclamation. And we begin the process of transitioning from mother into crone. The final card of the major arcana is the world. The fool, no longer a fool, is now wise. They're no longer trapped within the confines of a microcosmo screaming, me, me, me. Instead, they've come out the other side of their journey and they're changed and they want to give back. They want to inspire and to lift others to help others rise from this abyss of chaos. They want to help others find healing and the world to find peace. Baba Yaga is a grandmotherly crone, but she is also that chaos of initiation. In tarot, she would be considered the will of fortune. It's really this is where one's destiny begins. She would be justice, the hanged man, death, temperance, the devil, and the tower. Now, it's important to note that even in the scariest stories, when she's a child kidnapper, a warrior witch, or a cruel trickster, the protagonist always escapes. And despite her iron teeth and associations with cannibalism, no one in Baba Yaga's stories is ever eaten. Many Baba Yaga stories feature a young protagonist just entering into adulthood or marriage. In one such story, there's a father who gives his daughter over to Baba Yaga as a servant. The daughter completes her assigned chores and her tasks perfectly with the help of little mice. Impressed by her work, Baba Yaga rewards her with beautiful clothing. And finally, when her father comes to see if she's still alive, he's surprised to find that she's actually very rich. He takes her home, but her stepmother, of course, there's an evil stepmother, is jealous, so she sends her own daughter to Baba Yaga. But this girl chases the mice with a rolling pin. She doesn't do any of the work required of her. So what does Baba Yaga do? She breaks her into a million little pieces and puts her bones in a box. So not exactly evil, but also not quite benevolent. And then there's the story of Vasilisa the Beautiful, which can also be found in the book Women Who Run With the Wolves by Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes. On her deathbed, a merchant's wife gives a doll to their only daughter, Vasilisa, telling her that she must always keep the doll with her. If anything bad should happen to the girl, she's to give the doll food and ask for its advice, and the doll will help her. Eventually, Vasilisa's father remarries a widowed woman with daughters of her own. And just like in the story of Cinderella, her new stepmother and sisters are not kind, but they are jealous of her goodness and her beauty. They do all they can to diminish her allure with hard work and physical labor. But to their dismay, she grows healthier and more lovely, while the evil women grow uglier from their spite. But how does she flourish despite their cruel actions? It's the doll. 
Every night, Vasilisa secretly feeds the doll and asks for its advice. The doll gives her comfort and speaks wise words. And the next day, it does all of the girl's work for her. And when it comes time for Vasilisa to marry, all the bachelors pine for her hand. And the jealous stepmother grows even more enraged. She moves them all to a new home near a dense forest where Baba Yaga lives. One night, Vasilisa and her stepsisters are working by candlelight when one of the stepsisters purposefully snuffs out the light and then instructs her to go to Baba Yaga's hut for a new flame. Scared of being eaten by Baba Yaga, Vasilisa consults her doll. The doll's eyes glow and the doll says that as long as she's with her, she'll be safe. Vasilisa sets off for Baba Yaga's hut, and once in the woods, she's approached in turns by three horsemen. First, a man dressed in white atop a white steed and accompanied by daybreak. Next, a man in red riding a red horse, and behind him, the sun rises. And finally, a man clad in black with an ebony stallion, seeming to beckon the oncoming night, and who disappears at Baba Yaga's gate, made from leg bones. The bolts are arms and the lock is a mouth with sharp teeth still attached to a jawbone. Atop the pickets are skulls and as Vasilisa approaches, the eyes and the skulls begin to shine, lighting the clearing as though it were day. She's arrived at Baba Yaga's hut. Before I go any further, I just want to take a second to interject in the story. So the colors of the horsemen, white, red, and black. These three prominent colors show up consistently in folklore all over the world. The main one that comes to mind right now is Snow White, but I'm, I'm also thinking of the ballet, Swan Lake. Alchemy, as Dr. Carl Jung wrote about it, uses three colors to describe the basic trajectory of human transformation, black, white, and red. The black represents falling into the shadow world of chaos and fear and darkness and suffering, the first step in the transformational process. Next comes red, a color with ancient religious roots as the nourishing blood of earthly passion and love, symbolizing sacrifice, the moment of death, the letting go of the old. White, of course, is a symbol of purification, of new consciousness which follows the darkness and the sacrifice. White acknowledges the fact that something new has been brought to light. Interestingly enough, I actually own Dr. Carl Jung's black book collection, as well as his famous and long-anticipated red book. But as far as I'm aware, there aren't any white books out there. But these colors have been revered ever since the time of Plato, and they were used repeatedly in the grim canon, red as blood, white as snow, black as a raven's wing. And when these three particular colors come up in mythology and folklore, you can almost always guarantee that it's a tale of transformation. Okay, so back to the story. Let's see. Vasilisa has arrived at Baba Yaga's hut. Suddenly, there's a horrible roar, and the terrifying woman bursts out of the forest. Bravely, Vasilisa bows deeply, asking for a light as her stepsister had instructed. Baba Yaga responds, saying she'll give her the light. She'll first complete some work for her. And if she chooses not to, Baba Yaga then promises to eat her. Well, the decision seems pretty easy, so Vasilisa agrees and is given a series of challenges. To prepare a feast for 12, to clean the courtyard and house, prepare wheat, wash the linens, and to sweep. Vasilisa feeds her doll, and it does it does everything but prepare the feast. That Vasilisa does herself. And Baba Yaga is surprised that someone can do the tasks, and actually, she did them well. Satisfying that she fulfilled her side of the bargain, she sends the girl home with one of the skulls with blazing eyes. Vasilisa returns to her stepmother and sisters, bearing the skull like a candle which they gratefully receive because they've been without fire for many days now. But suddenly, the flames burst forth from the eyes of the skull, burning the stepmother and the sisters to cinders and ash. 
all with the exception, of course, of Vasilisa, who ends up weaving a linen so fine that she catches the eye of the Tsar and eventually becomes his bride. So while Baba Yaga can be benevolent, she does require that one earn it. And as a side note, the story also demonstrates Baba Yaga's power over morning, day, and night, as were represented by the three horsemen, because she commands them. Also, historians have theorized that in regards to Baba Yaga's hen hut, so the most common burial practice in Neolithic Central Europe was above-ground burials, where a wooden platform was raised on poles, stumps, or stilts. So the corpses could dry out and the bones could be preserved. Makes a lot of sense since there were offensive bones around her house. But the above ground burials were especially practiced for those who were revered like shamans as being kept above ground was believed to hold a spirit back from departing to the land of the dead. They believed that being above ground kept them on the border between realms. And as I said earlier, as a goddess, Baba Yaga was said to have guarded the entrance to the other world. She was between heaven, right, and the underworld. And so in this way, she was like a shaman. So coffins raised on poles or, or tree stumps, which would resemble stilts or chicken legs. In many tales, Baba Yaga has said to have a long nose made of lead. So long, in fact, that when she lied down, it would touch the ceiling. It's also said that she had to lie corner to corner. And with these descriptions, many believe her hen hut was actually a coffin, a burial site, or a tomb. And lastly, I'm just really curious. Have you read the book Woman Who Run With the Wolves by Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes? If you love mythology and folklore, mythological studies, and Dr. Carl Jung, I highly recommend getting your hands on a copy. Goddess, witch, mother, grandmother, prone, cannibal, helper, bone breaker. Baba Yaga is all of these things, but more than anything, she is she who initiates. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Narrative. If you are moved by today's episode and are looking forward to future broadcasts, be sure to hit subscribe. And as always, likes and shares are always appreciated and donations are always welcomed. I had a great time with you today and I can't wait to be with you again next week. Yours truly, XOXO, Mary Rogers. <laughs>